If this is your first Sunday, we are this morning uh, starting uh, our, our continuing. We're in our second week of a sermon series we began last week. So we're doing five weeks during the season of Lent on the Old Testament book of Amos. Uh, in the season of Lent, as Evan said earlier, is a, it's a season of repentance uh, leading up to Holy Week. It's a, it's a season for us to embrace uh, our mortality and our sinfulness so that as we embrace that, uh, we're opened up to the new life that is found in Christ through his death and resurrection. And repentance, it is the message of the prophet Amos. And so we figured letting God's voice through Amos do its work in our church in the season of Lent was appropriate and good. Now, the genre of prophecy in the Bible, it's probably the least studied and read for most Christians. It tends to be one of the most confusing and even unsettling genres as you read it. Uh, but the Apostle Paul in the New Testament letter of 2 Timothy said, all of God's word is profitable for us. Uh, and so we need to hear God's voice and God's word through the prophets. And as we read the prophets, there are major and minor prophets. Uh, Amos is a minor prophet. Uh, and if you've ever read through the prophets before, it, it's tempting for us to think that the world and society that the prophets spoke to is so different than our world and our society. And we can even be tempted to think that the God who's spoken about in prophecy is so different than the living God of today. But I really believe Amos, the simple shepherd from Tekoa, has a message that is very relevant and humbling for us today. Amos, he observed the people of God in 8th century BC, uh, and as he observed the people of God, it infuriated him. It infuriated him so much that he traveled from Judah in the south north to Israel to preach his message of repentance. And he was infuriated because the people of God were very religious, but they were not practicing true religion as revealed by God in his word. They lacked dependence on God by repentance and faith. They disregarded the revelation of God, therefore disobeying the commands of God. And they oppressed the poor and the vulnerable by sins of omission and commission. And so in this study of Amos during the season, I believe uh, that you'll find that uh, 8th century B.C. Israel is not too different than our day today, and that the Lord over Israel is the Lord of the living today. And so we're going to look this morning at Amos chapter 4, and if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we give attention to God's Word. In Amos chapter 4, the whole chapter, 13 verses, this is God's Word to us this morning. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, by, that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three, uh, when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, the, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. 
I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Well, God, we are thankful for your word that you speak to us that you, the living God, spoke to 8th century B.C. Israel, and it's your voice and your word to us today. Help us not to think that this is a message for some ancient people, but it's your, your voice to us this morning. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would speak to our spirits, that you would cause our hearts to turn back, to return to you this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth, meditation of all of our hearts, will be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, I have to confess, after much resistance, much resistance, I finally got sucked into the Murdoch trial that just finished up in South Carolina this past week. I'm not sure how many of you got sucked into it or followed along. Alec Murdoch was tried and just days ago convicted uh, of the murder of his son and wife. He's also guilty of serious financial crimes linked to other murders since 2015. I finally caved in and I watched the uh, Netflix documentary series, The Murdoch Murders, this past week. And it's, it was extremely fascinating. And the fascinating thing to me about the Murdoch family is that they effectively built a stronghold, uh, this kind of fortress of protection for their family in this small town uh, of South Carolina, Hampton, South Carolina, and Low Country. Uh, they did this, the great-grandfather started a law firm in which family members worked at for generations. Three members of the family consecutively served as district attorney there in Hampton, South Carolina. They purchased and owned thousands of acres of land with multiple properties. Differing family members worked through the city in a variety of capacities. The Murdochs knew everyone. They were connected to everyone. They were a very powerful family, secured by money, property, networks of people, influence. They had built something that they thought would give them security, safety, and prosperity. That's why I call it a stronghold. But with the trial and now the guilty verdict of Alec Murdoch, this stronghold has started crumbling. And the crumbling is on display for the whole world to watch. Now, right before our passage in Amos chapter 4, Amos says in Amos 3 verse 9, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt. Stronghold, I realize, is not a word we use very frequently today. But a stronghold was constructed for the purpose of security, safety, and prosperity. And we can go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and see that constructing strongholds apart from God has always been the strategy of the human heart to survive and flourish in this world. In Genesis chapter 4, 
Cain kills his brother Abel, and despite God's reassurance over his safety, Cain wanders restlessly east of Eden. And Cain then decides to build a city, a stronghold of protection for security, safety, and hopeful prosperity. And Amos calls out the strongholds of Ashdod and Egypt, the places that they have constructed to live apart from God with the hopes of flourishing. And as Amos begins the chapter we're looking at this morning, chapter 4, I think he still has the idea of strongholds in his mind. But now he turns to Israel, and he calls them out for the ways and the places that they are looking for security, safety, and prosperity apart from God. And then Amos preaches a message of how God has been giving them warning after warning after warning to leave their strongholds and to return to God. And so I want us to look at God doing these two things to Israel and how he does them to us so that ultimately we return and trust in God alone. So the two things we're going to look at is that God calls out self-centered strongholds. And the second thing is that God gives warnings to return. Let's look first. God calls out self-centered strongholds. There are two strongholds that God calls out in verses one through five. Greed in verses one to three and religiosity in verses four to five. Let's look first at greed. Amos begins by speaking to the women in Israel. That's who he's addressing in verse one. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria. How about that for a way of addressing a group of women? You cows of Bashan. Now, Amos is not talking about the body type of women. He's not body shaming. Bashan was sort of a breadbasket for Israel. Wheat was its primary crop, and it provided a lot of income and prosperity for Israel. So when Amos says, you cows of Bashan, it's to be understood as a statement pertaining to luxury and privilege. Now, when I was in my second year of campus ministry at UNC Chapel Hill, it was 2010, and I was invited to come speak to a women's luncheon at at the Atlantic Beach Yacht Club in Atlantic Beach, North Carolina. It was me and about 50 pretty well-to-do upper-aged women who were gathered around linen cloth tables, flowers, tea and coffee, and pastries. Needless to say, I was a little bit intimidated in this speaking gathering. Can you imagine me addressing them with, hear this word, you cows of Bashan? No way. (laughs) But that's the type of situation we have here. Amos is preaching to many of the wealthy, the well-to-do, the women in Israel. Now, I have to make something clear here. Being rich is not wrong. Having wealth is not wrong. But God is deeply concerned with how you get your wealth and how you treat others when you are wealthy. Amos is calling out these women for constructing a stronghold of greed and money. They are concerned about no one else but themselves. The text tells us that they oppress the poor and they crush the needy. They look over and and beyond and around those in need. They exploit the lower and working class. Their main concern in marriage is that their husbands give them the lavish life they think they deserve no matter what it costs him. They say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. They want their gin and tonics and their old fashions delivered to them as they sit on their new couches in their regal homes. That's kind of a Christian version of Real Housewives of Samaria. Amos thinks, is saying, you think you're secure, safe and prosperous in the stronghold of greed and money, but the Lord has sworn by his holiness, verse 2, the Lord has sworn that days are coming 
when they shall take you away by hooks and fish hooks. Pretty bleak and harsh statements. Verse 3, you will be cast out. It will be proven to be a stronghold that will fail, and it will not deliver on what you're ultimately looking for. Greed as a stronghold. It's taking money and possessions and relying on these gifts of God as a substitute instead of relying on God himself. Tim Keller, in referencing greed, says that greed is one of the only sins Jesus says watch out for. Jesus doesn't say watch out for adultery. Someone's not having an affair with another person and all of a sudden realizing they're having an affair. The whole time they know what they're doing. It's not a surprise. Greed, it's not always easy to identify. You don't always know when it's happening in your heart. It can creep up on you and so Jesus says, watch out. And our text gives us some things to pay attention to, some things to watch out for to see if greed is a stronghold. The first is the question, are you aware of the poor and the vulnerable in our own city? Those that are around you. Are you aware of them? Do you see them? Or do you look over them, around them, through them? Do you see them and and do you see the beauty and the image of God in them? Are you intentional? Not just do you see them, but are you intentional, proactive to love and provide and meet the needs? We can all fall into sins of omission and commission in this command to care for the poor. We can be unaware of the things that we're doing and not doing. And we can be aware, but decide to continue sinning. Here's another question to ask. Do you treat others as a means for your desired lifestyle? Do people feel pressure from you to give you what you think you deserve in this life? Maybe it's a pressure you apply to coworkers. Maybe it's a pressure you apply to your family. Maybe it's a pressure you apply to your spouse. People feel pressure from you to to provide uh, for for the life that you want. Greed's not the only self-centered stronghold God calls out here. Uh, He also calls out religiosity in verses four to five. Look at verse four. It says, come to Bethel, to Gilgal, bring your sacrifices every morning, tithes every three days, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, proclaim freewill offerings for so you love to do, O people of God. The Israelites were very religious. They love to do these things. They are exceeding the commands of God in what they're doing. They're going beyond what God commands. They're zealous and they're busy and they love to be religious for self-centered reasons. It's all a sham. They're using religion to provide for themselves security, safety, and prosperity through self-effort religion rather than trusting the holy God of salvation. The people of God are impressive to others. They're impressive to themselves, but they fail to impress God. A clear indicator that their religiosity is a self-centered stronghold is that in all the things they love to do, there is no mention of a guilt offering. The people of God have no sense of guilt. Therefore, they lack repentance. And repentance is evidence of trusting God rather than self. And so, Christ Central, we need to hear this. No amount of religious fervor can substitute for deep repentance and faithful obedience to God marked by a life of integrity. The absence of repentance in worship should give all of us pause. So how are you tempted to use religion? Are you busy doing Christian things so that it makes you feel a certain way or it props up your life in the ways you want? Are you more concerned with how you appear as a Christian than being a Christian? 
Are your posts on social media more about your piety and your activism? Or are they more about God and his glory? Be careful that your religion is not a stronghold used for selfish gain. And one way to check this tendency is to make sure your Christianity has the cadence of repentance and faith. That your relationship with God is marked by constant repentance and continual faith in Christ, which is not always flashy and it's not always visible for all to see. God calls out self-centered strongholds of greed and religiosity. The second thing God does to Israel and he does to us is that God gives warnings to return. Verses 6 to 11 can almost read like a, a major newsflash. Like you're scrolling Instagram and you're seeing disaster after disaster. Famine in verse 6, drought in verse 7, no running water in verse 8, crop failure in verse 9, disease in verse 10, uh, fire destroying the countryside in verse 11. But did you, did you notice that each news clip is not just an instant that happened? Each one is introdu introduced with a phrase, I gave you, I withheld, I sent, I struck, I overthrew. Clear statements of God's sovereignty. The sovereign God reigns over all things and he works even through suffering. The news flashes are God's warnings and urgent pleas to his people. They're, they're painful ones, but they're necessary ones. Now, I need to make a point here before I proceed. Our sovereign God is not a sadistic God. He doesn't rule over all things to inflict innocent suffering. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, Luke writes this, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish perish. Jesus is being clear that we cannot always interpret the pain and sufferings that we experience through the lens of our sin. Right? One cannot hear about the tower of Siloam killing 18 and conclude that the sin of the 18 was greater. In this world, in this broken and sinful world, the innocent suffer. It is a result of sin and evil. Now, this does not mean that there is no element of consequence for sin. And here's the thing that Amos and Jesus agree about. That every disaster and the pains that we experience in this life are a warning to return to God in repentance. God says, I gave, I withheld, I did. And then there's a repeated phrase in every verse, yet you did not return to me. When we experience the pains and sufferings of this world, they are an opportunity for us to examine our lives and to see where and in whom we're ultimately trusting and then return to trusting God. In 1997, Philip Yancey and Dr. Paul Brand published a book titled The Gift of Pain. Dr. Paul Brand was a surgeon who studied leprosy for his career. And he had many patients who were missing fingers and toes. And at, the, at this time, many scientists thought that the cause was the bad flesh brought on uh, by leprosy. And Dr. Brand discovered something new, that it wasn't bad flesh. It was the fact that those with leprosy had no feeling. They could not tell when infection was present. And as a result, the bones began to chip away, fade away, and they never knew it was happening. 
So Dr. Brand ended up spending some time in a hospital in America to study the importance of pain. He created experiments for those who had lost pain, putting sensors and socks and gloves, trying to replicate the unpleasantness and the persistence of pain. And scientists would come to the conclusion that there is a gift in pain because for five years, uh, through many experiments, through millions of dollars spent, experiments failed over and over and over. They could never replicate the unpleasantness and the persistence of pain. That there is actual a, actually a gift in pain. And, and Dr. Brand learned to value this gift with gratitude because it gave a warning that nothing else could produce. Do you know the original title of Yancey and Brand's book? The Gift That Nobody Wants. The Gift That Nobody Wants. Verses 6 to 11 are the warnings that nobody wants. Yet we have to see these warnings as gifts. Because God does not give out heartless threats, rather tender warnings to his people to return. God is in agony like a lover whose lover has run away or a parent whose child has gone astray. He is crying out to return to me. Return to me. The pandemic, a recession, stock market crash, the loss of a job, family dysfunction, are opportunities for us to turn from selfish strongholds and to return to trusting in God. When we experience and face the big newsflash instances, what if we saw them as a gift of warning that then led us to examine our lives, to examine if we're trusting in God or if we're trusting in our country? If we're trusting in God, are we trusting in our retirement account? Are we trusting in God? Or are we trusting in our job? Are we trusting in God? Or are we trusting other people? Let me bring this even a little bit more personal and closer here. Do you find yourself struggling with particular sins? Maybe there's addictions you've been struggling with. Is there bitterness at all in your heart toward anyone? Is there something that you feel like is weighing on your conscience? Please don't shrug it off and act like it's no big thing. Every, uh, even this morning, God is giving us his word and he's issuing us a warning and he's proclaiming, return to me. Return to me. He, he says in verse 12, therefore, thus I will do to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now I know this saying, prepare to meet your God, sounds a little outlandish, kind of over the top Christian speak, something you might see on a poster board as someone stands on the corner of a, of a downtown street, prepare to meet your God. But what Amos is saying is that we all need to get ready to come face to face with God. And he gives us four truths about God that I believe stir our hearts to return to him. The first is that he is your God. He says, prepare to meet your God. If you were to read the whole book of Amos, the covenant that God has made with his people is never explicitly mentioned. And some commentators and scholars think that's intentional because the people of God are in such violation of the covenant that God is calling them to examine the genuineness of being in covenant. Amos is calling to question, is God solely the covenant God in you, Israel, or is he really your God? And if he's not your God, then it might be scary to come face to face with him because he is holy holy, holy. But if he is your God, he's also near to the brokenhearted. 
close to those in need. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He cares deeply about you. The second truth about God is that he's the creator. Verse 13, who forms the mountains and he creates the wind. The Lord is the one who holds all things together. And Genesis tells us when he created, he delighted over his creation and he delights over you, his creation. That God takes great joy in who you are. He created no one else like you. You are perfectly and specifically created by him so that he can delight over you. The third truth about God is that he brings joy out of mourning. Verse 13, he's the one who makes the morning darkness. Sounds like Psalm 30, verse 5. That his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And we may not always feel the light shining into the darkness or hope breaking through despair in our current moments, but we trust that God is committed to bring joy out of sadness, that God is committed to bringing beauty out of ashes, that the day is coming when heaven will break through fully at the return of Christ and the new day will rise, and in that morning, joy will be ours completely. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but on that day we shall see our God face to face and we will rejoice. The fourth truth about God is that he brings renewal on earth. It says he treads on the heights of the earth, that God holds all power on earth, that our hope as Christians is not just some pie in the sky, float off to heaven when we die. God is able and he's powerful to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine right here, right now on earth. This is our God. This is who, will, who we will come face to face with. What will that day be like for you? Are you ready? Amos ends the chapter by saying, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. I love God's word. Amos is coming full circle. After declaring the strongholds that we construct for selfish reasons and how they will not stand, he now declares the only stronghold that will stand. The God of hosts, the Lord Almighty, God himself, he is the only one who can give us security, safety, and prosperity here on earth and in eternity. He is the better stronghold. He is the only true stronghold. Every other stronghold will come tumbling down. Psalm 18 verse 2 says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. He is my stronghold. He's my stronghold. And when we trust in God by repentance and faith, People of God, whom shall we fear? What can separate us from his love? If he is for us, who can stand against us? I don't know about you, but I can't wait to meet my God face to face. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that you would cause our hearts to, to turn and to return as we see how glorious you are. Lord, help us to to let go and to repent of all the selfish strongholds we have. Thank you that you love us and you call us to return even as we come to this sacrament of the Lord's table. It's a, it's a, it's a call to come and to return. Help us, Lord, as you meet us in the bread and the, and the cup. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.